Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll, less work, more clean. Terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It's the Autosport Podcast. We look back on how Lewis Hamilton took the championship lead at Monza and ask what this means for Ferrari's title challenge. Welcome to another Autosport podcast. The Italian Grand Prix is an important turning point in the championship as for the first time Lewis Hamilton takes the lead from Sebastian Vettel by just three points following his victory. My name is Ed Straw, Editor-in-Chief of Autosport and joining me to look back at the race and the, the major news stories off track are two guests who will be able to tell you everything you need to know about goings on. First we have Autosport's Grand Prix Editor, Ben Anderson. Now Ben, obviously you got back from Monza I think yesterday, didn't you? Correct. So... Monza's always a great race to go to, isn't it, with all the Tafosi there, even if getting around can sometimes be a bit challenging. Yeah, Monza, logistical nightmare, but great race, one of the classics. It's great to see thousands of fans come out to watch Formula 1. Also joining me is Glenn Freeman, editor of Autosport.com, who wasn't at Monza, but was controlling operations back at base on Autosport.com. Another big news weekend, wasn't it? Yeah, it was, it was massive. I think since we come back from the summer break, you know, everyone goes away for a while, there's not much to talk about. Spa and Monza, back to back, there's been a lot going on, so... Yeah, it's been busy, but that's that's good. Yep, we like it busy. Lots to talk about, lots to look at. But let's first look at what's going on on track. Lewis Hamilton won the race by 4.471 seconds from teammate Valtteri Bottas. Very precise. Sebastian Vettel 
36.317 seconds back. Now, a week ago we were talking about hasn't Ferrari done well, Vettel chasing Hamilton to the end at, at Spa, this is really good for the rest of the season. Okay, we expected Mercedes to have the advantage and win at Monza, but this was a pretty big gap, wasn't it? So is this just a, an extreme outlier? Does this say that Spa wasn't quite what we thought it was in terms of what it meant for the rest of the season? Tell us, Ben. Uh, I don't think uh, it has anything really to do with Spa. So those panicking that Ferrari are going to be uncompetitive now for the remainder of the season can rest easy. Uh, I think it's a combination of, as you say, the track being ideal for Mercedes, proper low downforce, no compromise on the setup at all, take as much wing out as you can get away with, uh, and basically who has the best engine. And Mercedes have had the best engine throughout this formula. They still have the best engine. That's what you saw at Monza. In combination with that, Ferrari underperformed. So I think they would have been beaten by Mercedes anyway, but they didn't quite get things right. As uh, President Sergio Marchionne said, they screwed up. And I think that's that's fair. They didn't quite get things together. Uh, and in combination with their car not really suiting that layout, they had a bad weekend. I'm amazed that it's taken until now for Hamilton to actually lead the standings. When, when I first heard that, I thought that can't be true. And uh, it, I think that's testament really to to how well Vettel maximised the first half of the season. A couple of Mercedes' bad days tended to be worse than Ferrari's in that early part. But I think what we've got to remember here is Hamilton's, what, three points ahead? So if we say that Vettel wins Singapore, which I think we all assume he will, wherever Hamilton finishes, Vettel's back ahead. And actually, we're looking at can Kimi Raikkonen finish second to do even more damage to Hamilton's charge? So in a couple of weeks' time, I think we're going to be looking at Ferrari back out front in the in the drivers championship battle and Hamilton's got another little hill to climb over so I think this is going to be short-lived and there's every chance that you could get to Abu Dhabi and it's a genuine winner-takes-all competition which I think is all anyone really wants to see isn't it yeah I mean it's great that we finally got a, a two-team championship fight again I think we all tried to find the Hamilton Rosberg years as interesting as we could but it's, it was always that dynamic of it, them being both in the same team it's just it's never quite as interesting like you say Ed we've got different cars with different strengths and weaknesses. So the tide does turn from race to race. And I think we are going to see that through the remainder of the season. One thing I I saw Valtteri Bottas said on Sunday that I thought was quite interesting. I don't know if you picked up on this, Ben. He said that they do have high downforce upgrades coming, but then probably not for Singapore. So is Mercedes almost thinking, right, we're going to finish third and fourth at Singapore, but let's make sure that when we get to those maybe more marginal tracks where it could be closer with Ferrari, that's where we unleash a lot more performance. Yeah, it could be that. His statement on Sunday night was slightly unclear, I thought, but they know they need to work on the high downforce setup, and Bottas has been probably the main guy saying that publicly. In theory, it would make sense if they could rush it out for Singapore, but maybe they're thinking, well, we're not quite sure absolutely how to fix this yet, so better not rush something out that then complicates the picture it's interesting to me that Bottas said at Monza that they found a stability in the car through the setup very low downforce that they hadn't had before so it seems that they now know how to get that car working absolutely perfectly in those kind of conditions but as you have to wind a bit more downforce on they start to get into some kind of trouble he was saying the middle sector at Spa where he struggled particularly that's where you needed more downforce and that's where he started to feel the instability so maybe they're finding perversely as they add more downforce the car gets more difficult to understand or more difficult to drive and that's going to be a very difficult picture to work out so I think they're obviously working on it they're getting there but 
maybe they need just a bit more time and they're better off thinking, well, when we get to those tracks post-Singapore where the wing levels are going to be more difficult to know exactly what to run, that's where they need to bring some of these updates just so they can widen that setup window and, and recreate that Monza stability. Because if they can do that, then Hamilton and Bottas are going to be in a very strong position. That's quite an interesting scenario because it's the reverse of what you normally have. Traditionally, the more downforce you're running, the more you cover up the vices in the car. But that suggests to me that maybe some of the higher-end downforce they're getting, are they a little bit prone to airflow separations? Is it a bit unstable? Because as soon as you start talking about car stability, it's either going to be down to the mechanical platform not quite being right, and that's going to be the same at Monza as it is at other circuits, give or take, obviously, putting more loading on it. But that does suggest that maybe there's a maybe there's an aero ceiling there pushing up against that. Yeah, perhaps. Also, um, we should remember that these cars are producing a lot more downforce from the underfloors now, so that makes them very ride height sensitive. And that's one area where Mercedes was very strong in the past, but if we go back to pre-season and the suspension ruling clarification, it seems like Mercedes are one of the teams, along with Red Bull, that lost out in that scenario. So they've probably been fighting through this year to recreate the ride height control as best they could that they used to have. And if they haven't quite got there, as they're winding on more downforce and ride height control becomes more critical, perhaps that's an area they are now struggling in where they weren't in the past. Do we think that Valtteri Bottas's title challenge has been blown out of the water by these back-to-back wins for Hamilton? Because it's now looking very much like he needs to be their focus. It's a big gap now. It's it's 41 points, not too far off two victories worth. It's also big if you consider that the team they're up against, Ferrari, is very much only backing one prancing horse. So I think Mercedes have probably known for a little while that it was going this way. They've, they've played it actually quite well. Um, they'll still be hoping that the position switch uh, in favour of Bottas doesn't come back to bite them. But I think uh, someone described that move, that gesture from Hamilton as maybe putting some credit in the bank for later in the year when he needs it. And I think Hamilton's played that very well, actually. He, he's, I think he's managed the Bottas relationship very well. Whether or not it's genuine or not, they are acting like best buddies. You know, when there was the qualifying delay on Saturday, Lewis was on his Instagram feed doing a, a live video. He's playing computer games with Valtteri, he's joking around with him. And it seems like a pretty good bond. And I think Lewis knows that that's probably the way he's going to get the most support from Bottas. If he thinks he's got his number in a straight fight is to then really make him feel like he's a part of Lewis's championship charge. And I think that's the way it's going to develop. You know, Nicky Lauda's a loose cannon, but he's already said they need to start backing one driver. I'm sure he'll be saying that behind closed doors as well. And that's how I'd expect it to develop. Mercedes have definitely realised that they need to consider seriously the possibility of backing one driver over the other. I think Toto will said as much during the, the Monza weekend. I think Bottas probably knows in his heart of hearts that that's the way it's going to go. Uh, it doesn't seem like they've told him that that's what they're going to do. And if they have, he's doing a very good job of playing a poker face on it. He says things are still in his own hands. I suppose to an extent that's true, but Hamilton seems to have gone up a gear since Silverstone. Yeah. Uh, he said himself on Sunday night that that race lit a forest fire within him, which is a lot of fire to deal with. But he's been driving brilliantly since, including and since that race. Bottas, I don't think, has quite gone gone there with him. Uh, and it's been interesting the last two races, particularly Spa, where there was absolutely no difference in the cars. And Hamilton was out front winning the race brilliant pole at Bottas just couldn't couldn't find the answer and I think that perhaps Bottas is probably starting to realize that that's the next level that he kind of needs to aspire to uh, that world champion uh, level that Hamilton's built up over time it doesn't just automatically happen when you're in the best car there's still 
certain things and bits of magic you can perform that uh, he he's yet to reach. Basically, it does seem to be that Hamilton's on one of those those waves. He's riding the crest of the wave a bit there, isn't he? He's won three out of four races now. The key is what what happens with Singapore. I think if Hamilton and Mercedes go in there thinking that third will be a good result and come away from that without his momentum having actually been interfered with, then you know he can take that to the next few tracks. You know he can't afford a repeat of say Monaco where if the car is difficult to drive. He has a terrible weekend and it's Bottas who gets the most out of it. I think going back to what Ben was saying before about Bottas maybe now seeing the level that you have to get to to be a proper world championship winning driver. If anything, it's probably a surprise that Hamilton wasn't able to unleash more of that at the start of the season. Maybe he wasn't as happy with the car. So Bottas perhaps came in and exceeded a lot of people's expectations relative to Hamilton to begin with. And now I think Ben's right. Hamilton has maybe got his head in gear, got everything working the way he likes it, and he, he does appear to be stepping it up. Yeah, I think you're onto something there with Bottas. I mean, he, he said himself, at, at the point of the season where the Mercedes was more inconsistent and more difficult, and everyone, including Hamilton, was scratching their heads more trying to understand what was going on, Bottas seemed to be doing better. He was making more of the Mercedes when it was at its worst than Hamilton was, which is the opposite of what you'd expect. If but you're he's saying, used to driving a not-so-good car, isn't that's, he? That's exactly the point. And even he made that point. He said, well, you know, I was used to driving the Williams with much less downforce, the car not being right for most tracks. And I think he felt more in his comfort zone than Hamilton, who's been used to driving by far and away the best car for the last few seasons. But as that car has settled down and got better, you're starting to see Hamilton unleash more of his potential and... It's down to Bottas to try and find a way to go with that, which as yet he hasn't quite done. Looking at Monza specifically, obviously Bottas came through to quite an easy second place in the end. So I think Mercedes was fairly straightforward for for both of them in the end, certainly once Bottas picked off the places early on. You mentioned Ferrari weren't getting the best out of the car. Vettel was a long way back, 36 seconds, and he also had this little steering problem he talked about towards the end, which I don't think made any any real difference. For one lap, certainly. Exactly, but... This description of it, them as a shambles from Marcioni, is that is that a fair one? Was it that bad a weekend from Ferrari? Well, it was a bad weekend. I think he's probably in part making a bit of an emotional response. I mean, it's Ferrari's home race. And as Kimi Räikkönen pointed out afterwards, it's unfortunate for them that the track that suits their rival the most compared to them is their, is Monza, the place where their loyal fans are, the place where they would expect to get the best result they possibly can but you know they haven't been on pole or won that race since 2010 and it carries on for at least another year I don't think they were a shambles but they certainly did underperform they were a bit confused as to why the car wasn't working as well as even they expected their pace on Friday was reasonable certainly over the short runs when the engines were turned down not so good on the long runs they didn't hit the setup sweet spot straight away there was work to do And I think that work was disrupted by the bad weather we saw on Saturday. Ordinarily, Ferrari would have had an extra hour to work on some setup details, get the car in better shape for qualifying, and then they probably would have been in better shape for the race as well. But they missed out on that. And there is something fundamental about that car. We don't know exactly what it is, but the team alluded to it, uh, that doesn't work in low downforce trim. So it's it's the inverse case to Mercedes, where Mercedes seems to struggle massively in places like Monaco, Budapest, which are twisty, tight, all about peak downforce. The Ferrari setup window narrows when you go to the other end of the spectrum and you're trimming downforce off. So it just seems that there's something fundamental about the way those two teams have designed their chassis and you get to a certain extreme on the calendar and there's nothing really they can do about it unless they uh, completely change the car design philosophy. Marchioni's a nightmare, isn't he? 
you know, just every every once in a while, another load of quotes come in, and he's always slagging somebody off or saying that he's you know undermining his team constantly. And Monza in particular, there's always that thing where he emerges from the Ferrari motorhome with Arriva Benny alongside him, and then you get these really awkward shots, be it TV or photographs, where Marchionne is holding court and saying, you know, Ferrari needs to do this, or this is what we're doing wrong, or we need to be better at this. Arriva Bene has to stand in the background like a kid who is being slagged off by his parents in front of a load of other parents. It's a ridiculous image, I think. Great for us. You know, you know, when we found out that Marchionne had come out and said Ferrari screwed up, you're like, yeah, we'll have some of that. But I don't really see how that helps. Okay, he's controlling a budget and throwing a lot of money at this F1 team to make it a success. And a lot of the changes have clearly worked, as we've seen this year. But where's the... Where's the support in public? I, I don't really get it. I think there's probably partly a case of feeling a need to justify a bad performance to the public. You know, they're at Monza. It's the home race. It's 70 years of Ferrari as a racing car constructor. Massive crowd for the new rules. Vettel leading the championship. The fans are hoping to see a, a home win, aren't they? And they've ended up having their worst performance probably of the season. To a certain extent, he's got to come out and say something just to... Yeah, and in in fairness, if he came out and either or either didn't speak or denied that there was anything wrong and was really bland about it, I'd be slagging him off as well. I just mean from Ferrari's perspective, it's always that image at Monza of the team boss stood in the background while he's being undermined by the big cheese in front of him. And I just from a team perspective, that must be incredibly hard to to stomach. Or maybe they just roll their eyes and let him get on with it and just the sooner Monza's out of the way, the sooner they can get to the flyaways and get on with their job again. And of course, there's a long history of this with Ferrari. Luca de Montsemolo exactly. used to do it as well. I remember in Singapore in 2008, John Todd was there. That was when he was no longer the team boss. He had a, a chairman role, I think he had. And he turned up there and everyone's instantly on edge. And then sure enough, Massa tries to leave the pits with a with a fuel hose still attached to him. So Fuel the, hose on the loose. Exactly, fuel hose on the loose. So these things, these things do happen. But I would also say... From Ferrari's perspective, could they not be said to have dodged a Red Bull-shaped bullet? Thanks to the grid penalties, obviously Max Verstappen started 13th and then he had his problem with Massa in the race that dropped him back. Danny Ricciardo started 16th, thanks to grid penalties and thanks to doing the reverse strategy, starting on the soft and then finishing on the on the super soft and having that pace advantage at the end. wasn't a million miles off being able to overhaul him for third. So you could say that had the Red Bull started ahead where they should have done, where they qualified, it would have made the, the race certainly more complicated for Ferrari. Yeah, absolutely. Like you say, there would have been two Red Bulls ahead and Red Bull would certainly, I think, have sacrificed one to help the other finish ahead. So if we try to imagine the race playing out ordinarily without grid penalties, you probably would have said, well, Verstappen has a chance of finishing finishing second or third if he can't resist Bottas because of the Mercedes engine advantage. And then Vettel would probably have got past Ricardo, maybe not on track, but in the pits. Ricardo then would have probably finished ahead of Raikkonen, who would have been sacrificed for Vettel's hopes in the race. We also have to consider that Vettel, having got to third, almost realised, well, I'm not going to catch the Mercedes. So I don't think Vettel was driving at his best. And when Ricardo went on that that charge at the end of the race that kind of lit up the final stages and he thought, well, maybe there's a chance we get... He did respond a bit, didn't he? Yeah, I mean, he could could see the gap coming down and then you get to the last few laps and he just upped his pace enough to respond and did, I think, two or three laps that were on average the same as Ricardo's and that stemmed the tide and 
held it off. So there's a bit of pace in reserve for Ferrari. And if you looked at the long runs on Friday, even with the car not working as they wanted, they were still about four tenths of a second per lap up on the Red Bulls. So they had an advantage, I think, inherently at Monza over Red Bull, who really struggled with the engine. If you look at previous races on the calendar, we know Red Bull has a dis- massive disadvantage in qualifying, but usually on the long runs in race pace, they're quite even with the top two cars. And in Monza, that wasn't the case. So I think they probably slightly artificially looked better than they were. Do we want to read anything into the fact that it was again Ricardo that executed the race well while it was Verstappen who had the contact with Massa and then contact with Grosjean later on and only came away with a point? Yeah, fine margins, isn't it, really? Um, I tried to make that point to Christian Horner after the race. Does Verstappen have anything to learn from the way Ricardo seems to kind of quietly, silently, stealthily get through these races and end up in the position he that does. he should have done? Um, Verstappen, um, well, Horner made the point that, uh, that Max, had he survived that clash with Massa or had that moment turned out ever so slightly differently, it would have been... Max finishing on the podium and we will never know but I do feel like maybe Verstappen is just slightly impatient in wheel-to-wheel situations Horner's right Max made an excellent start made a lot more progress than than Ricardo had up to that point but that's the point where you've got that advantage in the bag already over Ricardo so you don't necessarily have the moment that he had with Massa as good as Ricardo is at overtaking and mugging people on the brakes would he have put himself in that situation, especially having already done the hard bit, which was getting yourself comfortably into the top 10 at the first corner, effectively? Yeah, I think it was very interesting that you make that comparison. Ricardo's late move on Raikkonen down the inside at the last second Decisive on the Decisive as well. Decisive, but also in a situation or putting himself in a situation where the other car can't do anything. It has to concede. Verstappen made a risky move around the outside of Massa and if you're on the outside line, you're always going to put yourself in more danger. As he uh, did with Grosjean later on. Absolutely, as he did with Grosjean later on, uh, with similar consequences. I think Verstappen just expects, when he's making a move, for the other car to yield, to get out of the way, to concede to the inevitable in his mind. And Massa didn't, and that creates a sudden problem that he's not expecting. And his reaction in that situation is not calm. It seems to be, well, I'm just going to stay here and invite a crash, and if we crash, we crash, and... That's kind of what happened. Which comes back to the Hungary thing as well, where he didn't have a great first corner, so then he overreached into the next corner, which resulted in him sliding into Ricardo. He obviously he wasn't trying to lunge or wipe Ricardo out at that point. It was just a mistake, but it seemed to be a mistake that was born out of stuff hasn't gone right five seconds previously. Yeah, and I think Ricardo's take on that is interesting too. I asked him about Max and his behaviour in Hungary, and he said... He thinks it, it's just youth. You know, yeah. We've got to remember that Verstappen is still really young and he's just impatient. And Ricardo has already been through that period of his career. He says that he was too far the other way when he was a new driver in Formula 1, too conservative and needed to find more aggression. Verstappen's come in the other, the other way with the opposite approach. And uh, Ricardo believes that just give him a, a bit more time and he'll just temper those... Yeah, I completely agree. And I think also if Red Bull were more competitive, as I think Verstappen was hoping, then these frustrations wouldn't be getting to him so much. I think he feels that he needs to overreach to make up for the deficiencies of the car, whereas Ricardo's learned that lesson the hard way in 2015 already when he was expecting more from Red Bull. And now he just rolls with the punches. He, He deals with what he has as he finds it. You have to say, Ricardo, 
his racecraft is exemplary. His overtaking is fantastic. You know, you look at that move he did on Raikkonen. Very late move, but the maximum of breaking, a tiny bit of a lock-up. And yeah, okay, Raikkonen didn't turn in on him, which he got quite a lot of praise for, but he wasn't leaving things to chance, though, like you said, Glenn. Raikkonen couldn't do anything about that. And Ricardo's got this amazing ability to launch these attacks consistently. And even when he does occasionally have a little bit of contact with people, it never seems to go too far. He's absolutely on the money in terms of the way he executes races and pulls passes. Yeah, and, and he's earned, I think, the respect of his rivals and the right to do that. You know, the way he's gone about muscling with the front runners has been this kind of slow build-up process, not try much, too much too soon, whereas Verstappen's come in and no respecter of reputations at all. And that's fine and exciting and, and enjoyable to watch, but it comes with a price. And I think, you know, if you see the way Massa was with Verstappen, not that they've had any particular instance I can think of before, but he's less inclined to think, oh, I'm just going to, you know, let you go. Or, you know, he knows they all see what the other drivers are capable of. I think people know when they're racing Ricardo that he's not going to do anything controversial. He's not going to do anything that they might deem dirty. So they give him room and they give him the respect. And we should also point out that in that particular movie with Raikkonen, Raikkonen didn't really put up much of a fight. He kind of said afterwards, well, what was the point? He had much fresher ties. He was going to beat me anyway. It's a bit disappointing to hear that. But of all the people he could have passed with that move, that was the one guy who just wasn't really interested in doing anything to, to stop him. But nevertheless, as you say, perfectly judged, very well executed. And he, he did it to Valtteri Bottas the year before in exactly the same place. So consistently we see great race car from, racecraft from Ricardo. Well, it says a lot that Raikkonen didn't expect Ricardo to do that. Does anybody care about the Kevin Magnussen fury with Max Verstappen on this battle into the second chicane late on? No, I think once we saw an onboard from Magnussen's roll hoop, that was conclusive for me. When they reached the braking zone, Verstappen is clear of Magnussen's front wing. So he's got the right to take any part of road he wants there as far as I'm concerned. Magnussen either then comes off the brakes or reduces a brake pressure or something to basically drive into a gap that isn't there and is decreasing and then gets annoyed that he runs out of space. So I thought that was correct decision from the stewards to just let that one go. Yeah, that's that's well called, I think. Magnussen was just a bit desperate to cling on to 10th place and you know, he's been there the, pretty much the whole race he can see a point on a on a you know, difficult weekend for the team and Verstappen's coming through and it's it's he's almost just trying to to stop the inevitable and then the way he was complaining on the radio saying oh you can't do that you can't do that shouldn't be allowed it's just a you know blatant attempt to try and get the other driver penalized so that he can bank that point because it's, it's footballers surrounding a referee, isn't it? That sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. Like Verstappen was the only car in that train that was going to stop him finishing 10th. So he knew that if he could get Verstappen penalised or out the way somehow, he's going to finish 10th. And, you know, in the end, the stewards saw it the same way Glenn saw it. We also saw the weekend Lance Stroll becoming the youngest front row starter in F1, taking that record off Max Verstappen, I think. Obviously, Ocon qualified third, started third after a strong qualifying performance. And then we saw Force India and Williams cars all converging and covered by a few seconds in 6th, 7th, 8th, 9th with Ocon, Stroll, Massa, Perez. I guess that was to be expected. That's where the car pace was. But I thought it was a a pretty good, sensible drive from Stroll. And we've seen him on tracks like this getting quite a bit out of the car and and actually performing well, you'd say. Yeah, when when the car's good, or maybe when Williams' power advantage is is more decisive than some of the trickier tracks where it's chassis deficiencies hold it back. 
when the opportunity is there for a decent result, Stroll seems to be able to deliver it now. You know, he did well in Baku. He had the first points came in Canada before that, another track that was suitable for the car. He did very well here throughout the weekend, excellent in, in qualifying in the wet. I think Massa said even with a perfect lap, he would get nowhere near him. Um, and then delivered a, a pretty decent race. So, yeah, I think actually when, when a car's pretty good, he can he can handle that now. The thing I don't think we've seen yet, I don't know if Ben will agree with this or not, is when the car's bad, it seems that Stroll suffers more for that than Massa does. And the gap seems very big between them on the difficult tracks for Williams. Yeah, that's not, not a bad reading of the situation. I think that partly that's down to Stroll's lack of experience. He's still a rookie driver, isn't he? So when things are difficult, he has less experience to fall back on, less tools available in his own chest to, to dig himself out of trouble. Um, his qualifying performance at Monza was brilliant. Like, he was the real star, I think, of qualifying. I know, obviously, Hamilton took the, the record for the most poles Um in that session and obviously Verstappen and the Red Bull drivers were very both very good but for me Stroll was the, the standout to be so far ahead of his teammate 1.2 seconds I think it was he was seven tenths clear of Ocon who had a good session so it's a, it's a glimmer of the the talent that Williams keeps saying is there and the real reason that he's in that team uh, he just needs to find a way to harness it more regularly and hopefully that will come with more experience. We've mentioned a few times the grid penalties that was one of the big talking points of qualifying the other big talking point being the very large stoppage that there was I think qualifying took three hours and 40 minutes or thereabouts to get an hour's worth of qualifying. Felt like it. Qualifying done so there was a little bit to talk about there so two separate things really. There were a hell of a lot of grid penalties but that's to be expected when people have the opportunity to tactically make engine changes on tracks where they think they're they're going to struggle because the gaps between the best engine in Formula 1 and the worst ones are so big. They just can write off whole races thinking, well, what's the point? That's the that's the real problem, isn't it? On the grid penalties themselves, what's the alternative? I was wondering this out loud on Twitter at the weekend and all the responses I got were, just make the engines much cheaper. Give them as many engines as they want for the same price that they pay for four now. If it was that simple, they would have done it already. You know, if, if Mercedes could churn out 40 of their engines per customer driver for the price of four at the moment, they might as well do it because that's how they would get that much money through the door. I don't think they're particularly ripping the teams off at the moment. I think Mercedes have said in the past that they almost consider their engine program to be a loss maker because of the effort that goes into the works team and then the prices they're having to give to the customer teams. I honestly don't see what the alternative is because I think if you if you open up uh, engine use to be free, the top teams will take one every weekend, maybe one or two a weekend if they need it. And the other teams will be forced to not use their en- as many engines. They can't afford that. If they do spend more money on engines, that's money they can't spend on aero. So the gap between the cars gets bigger. So we'll either end up with teams going bust, trying to keep up with this engine arms race at the front, or the gap will get even bigger than it is now between the front and the back of the grid because no one else would be able to afford to develop the other parts of their car. I'm not supporting the penalties. I don't think they're a perfect system, but I honestly don't know what the what a realistic alternative solution is at the moment. Yeah, I think that's well said. Um, the grid penalty system has been in place for a long time to encourage more reliability and reduce costs, which everyone in Formula 1 says they're in favour of. So for me, it's symptomatic of a wider problem, which is that the engine formula hasn't worked as intended. The gaps are too big. It's too costly. So you're trying to find ways on the one hand of helping the manufacturers close up competitively, which means you need to allow free development. 
but at the same time they want the engines to be reliable so they can reduce costs and keep the gaps small between all the teams so it's an impossible circle to square isn't it you've always got to have some area where there's a solution that in isolation is not ideal in this case it's the grid penalties which yeah you don't ideally want to see them but if you just chuck them out the window as so many people want to do there's many many knock-on effects and it's not even only the the cost of producing the engines because obviously there is a cost attached to engineering in the longer life of these engines but it's also if you allow let's say you allow unrestricted engines well suddenly you're going to get teams rebuilding the cars overnight etc you put more stress onto the onto the mechanics and the people who are actually doing it so either you're going to work them to death or you're going to have to have more operational personnel so there's all these points that are connected to it and i think the key point i think Go and mention with these engines, you could look at a different engine formula and then something different happens. You could look at a simpler engine formula maybe and you can take a different approach. But these engines are here. These power units are here. They can't be magicked out of existence. They can't be magically made really, really cheap. So there's no tick box solution. What needs to be done is there's a next generation engine being talked about and this needs to be part of the discussion. It doesn't need to be let's spec the engine and then think about the consequences after. Let's take a holistic view of the whole situation. We want to get that and then you set the engine spec based on the kind of cost that you want attached to it. How about the the wet weather? Do we have a problem with, with the fact they stopped it for so long? I always have a problem with the fact that they don't get started quickly enough yep. after the stoppages and there was a window they missed. Yeah, I'd agree with that. The start-finish straight looked really treacherous uh, just before Grosjean went off and we, we had the red flag. It's, it's valid that up to that point no one else had gone off. So is that simply just when the conditions are treacherous, you, you pay that price if you run out of talent or your car runs out of grip? Um, but it, yeah, it felt over, the response seemed overly conservative to me. By all means, red flag it for a bit. But someone pointed out, you know, just before they finally restarted, we suddenly had brooms jet blowers whatever else appeared where were they an hour and a half prior when when the track was at its worst let's let's get out there and get on with that straight away i mean you were you were there ben you were overlooking the pit straight what was what was your assessment of it was it did they do the right thing in stopping and stopping for so long well i'd I'd fallen asleep by that point so from my vantage point i didn't see too much uh i think it's it's one of those situations again where everything's a bit too reactive it's like the weather comes in and then it's like, oh, what are we going to do? Okay, send out the safety car. Is it okay? Oh, we're not sure. Come back. Well, what do we do in this situation? Oh, we don't know. It doesn't seem like there's ever really a clear strategy. I think possibly it was an overreaction to delay for so long based on one incident. I think if you'd had three or four cars go off all at once or all in a short space of time, you could go, okay, yeah, we got this wrong. The track's way too wet. Um, and I take your point that if there are tools available to clear the track because it's too wet, then why not employ them just to, to get on with things? It seemed like they just wanted to wait. And all the while they were, wait, they were waiting, there was more rain coming down. The track's getting wetter and there aren't cars out there to clear the track, which is what they do when they're out on the track. Well, Charlie Whiting said during the delay, didn't he? He said the problem is that the weather's unpredictable. So they couldn't quite tell from the radar what was coming in. Uh, I, I assume I don't know whether that was because the wind was swirling around or what, what quite what was making it so unpredictable. But that seemed to spook them. I think they were wary of going green, and then a load of weather comes in that they weren't expecting, and then maybe they get the scenario that Ben's talking about, where you do have four or five cars spear off at once, uh, and then you're in real trouble. So, in some ways, what bothers people more is the sort of you'll have an update in ten minutes, an update in fifteen minutes, 
And then that, that time passes. Oh, no, still nothing for another 15 minutes. And in the end, they said that thing, didn't they, where they said 10 minute, we'll give you a 10 minute warning because you had this stupid scenario where the drivers kept getting back in their cars only to be told, no, nope, another 15 minutes because you kept getting the fans hopes up. They keep seeing on the big screens, the drivers are getting back in the cars. Here we go. And then they all get out again. You could hear the boos and the whistles even on the TV coverage. And they do have to be careful procedurally about the windows they're committing themselves to because as soon as they had an update and with that 10 minute thing, so you have an update at quarter past the hour, next update in quarter of an hour. 10 minute notice straight away that's a 25 minute window you're not running in so maybe they just need to be willing to trigger that 10 minute warning at, at any point do you need to keep the safety yeah, car why do you out need to do it every 15 minutes you know why not just say to the teams look be on your toes at any moment we might say you're going out in 10 minutes that might save them a bit of time yeah, as so well it's a more logical way of doing it. and you can leave the safety car out there there's ways and means you can constantly monitor the track and then trigger a 10 minute warning which straight away that reduces your your go window from a maximum of 25 minutes down to 10 minutes at any one time. Well, to avoid talking about that topic for 3 hours and 40 minutes, we should probably move on to <laughs> some off-track. to fall asleep. <laughs> exactly, yeah, well, Getting close. it's hard to tell the difference. Now, off-track, there's been lots of talk about the McLaren-Honda situation as we record this, various deadlines and possible announcements, things that might happen. We may have McLaren-Renault announced Honda yeah, you need Toro to edit Rosso. this podcast quite quickly, don't you, Ed? So uh, we're not out. Whatever we're about to say doesn't become out of date. Exactly, exactly. Well, uh, quick! If, if something happens, we may reconvene for another one. But it does seem that they're heading for a separation, McLaren and Honda. Is that your reading of it, Ben? I think that's certainly what McLaren wants. Um, they've had enough. It's been too many embarrassing races, too long of performance not reaching the level that they want and expect. But it's a tricky situation because. What's the alternative? Well, we know that the preferred alternative is Renault, but they don't have a spare engine supply to give McLaren. And Mercedes say the same, Ferrari say the same. So as things stand, the only engine on the table for McLaren is Honda, which is the engine they don't want. So there's a complicated scenario that extricates themselves from that situation, but it involves a lot of pieces of the puzzle falling into place at the same time. They want a Renault engine supply. The only one that seems to be on the table is Toro Rosso's. Toro Rosso needs to do a deal with Honda in order that they get the finance that Honda can put into that team and the engine. Uh, But then Renault want compensation for the engine contract that they've got with Toro Rosso. So that probably involves Carlos Sainz moving to Renault because he's their top target. Uh, So all of these things need to come together at once. And if one piece of that puzzle doesn't, come together then the whole thing's off and we're back where we started so it's amusing that mclaren are in this scenario if you consider that when red bull were trying to get rid of renault at the end of 2015 and came sniffing around a honda engine supply ron dennis vetoed it from happening i think it was around the time of suzuka actually and now we're in a scenario where mclaren would quite like to get shot of their engine supplier and kind of because of the scenario ron created by vetoing that deal back then they're now boxed in because the rules that were written to prevent that happening again the deadline for that has passed so there's no there's no mandatory supply that can come in that means somebody else is forced to give mclaren an engine the other thing is how many complaints have we had from red bull about the renault engine not being up to it for the past three years so mclaren's situation with honda has got so bad that they're now taking what's arguably the worst of the other engines that another previously world championship winning team doesn't really like either 
suddenly that's McLaren's golden ticket and that's going to solve all their problems. I I think they'll do very well, even if they get a Renault engine, to match Red Bull next year. But you can see how much desperation there is just to get out of this, can't you? Just listen to Fernando Alonso, who basically seems to have been reduced to the comedy radio communication sideshow in races. Julian Palmer was his chosen uh, his chosen target in this particular race with that incident at, at the second chicane. But it's clear that everybody's just become impatient with the whole the whole thing within McLaren. The fact they're willing to even ca- even countenance, let alone get so close to pulling the trigger on this thing with all the commercial implications it has, and like you say, Glenn, getting an engine that is currently the third best, no matter what the potential. Renault's hardly a magic bullet these days, is it? So. Does that just tell you that the whole McLaren-Honda thing has, has just gone beyond salvageable, short of Honda suddenly turning up at Singapore with a with a magic engine upgrade that there's no sign of? Yeah, I think that's pretty much the situation. The The marriage has gone from one of mutual want to convenience, basically. I think it's inconvenience now, isn't it? Well, it, convenience only in the sense that we need an engine to run in the car. That, that All the trust has broken down. I think from McLaren's point of view, they feel that Honda just hasn't delivered on what it said it could do it's broken its promises uh it's it's almost a mirror image of the red bull renault relationship which isn't repaired you know they they are in a marriage of convenience there's no there was no alternative for red bull but to re-sign with renault and on worse terms than they had before so you can see it from both sides it in a weird way it kind of makes sense like red bull need a different strategy really i don't think they believe that renault can really turn it around based on the recent history they've had mclaren doesn't know the ins and outs of that and maybe feels that it can build a different relationship starting from scratch and then equally their relationship with the Honda's broken down to the point where they just don't trust anything that they do or say whereas Red Bull might look at that and go well okay from afar you go into Toro Rosso we can look at that and we can we can start again and if Honda supplies two teams in the future that's better than Renault supplying three teams and us having the constant problems we're having let McLaren have those problems now. It's it's the grass is always greener, isn't it? So yeah. McLaren are looking at, oh, Red Bull don't like their Renault engine, but yeah, we'd fancy a piece of that. Meanwhile, Red Bull are going, well, if that Honda engine ever sorts itself out, it'll be better than the situation we're in. So even if some switching around goes on, I think everybody will get to the point quite early next season where the novelty wears off and they'll realise that it's not that much better. Well, there's an extra factor to consider as well in that uh, Red Bull isn't aligned with Renault in terms of fuel supplier, whereas McLaren is. You know Whether it's true or not, Red Bull believes that Renault isn't, is screwing around with them and they're not getting the same deal as the works team is getting. We've seen a few races this year where Renault's qualified quite close to Red Bull's, perhaps surprisingly close considering the, the gap between the chassis at the start of the season. So Red Bull feels that they're not getting the best from Renault. McLaren would probably feel, well, we've got the same fuel supplier for a start. We're starting from scratch. We will get the same. So that will mean they get a better Renault engine than Red Bull's got. And then equally, Red Bull will just feel, well, perhaps the Honda engine isn't as bad as it's being made to look. There's been some suggestion that McLaren are running their car with far too much wing at pretty much every track, which is making Honda look worse than it is. So Red Bull might feel, as they showed in Monza, in lower downforce trim, they've got a car that works quite well. So they're probably thinking, well, let's bring the Honda in and actually see what it can do and give them the sort of, extra support that McLaren isn't apparently giving Honda. The last thing I'd like to pick up on there was something Ben said early on when he was explaining all the dominoes that have to fall over at the same time, basically. 
the idea of Science and Hulkenberg at the Works Renault team is a fascinating prospect to me. Yeah, it'd be a great lineup. It's a, it's time that Renault, you know, given that it's setting itself up as a manufacturer team that wants to win the world championship again, took a big statement with its driver lineup. They did, I think, they did that last year with Hulkenberg, and it was a good signing. I think it was a shrewd move from Hulkenberg to go there as well. Yeah, given that. Renault was basically in the market for every midfield driver last year and they all seemed to say no or no, we'll wait and see. And he's taken the plunge and now it looks like that's the best move anyone could have made outside the big three teams. The second seat, Palmer's been underperforming this year. Most people think he won't turn it round, that he hasn't really got a future. They need to make a statement of signing a good proper driver to give Hulkenberg the hurry up. And science this year looks like he's probably the best performing driver in that in that group. So if they were to put him alongside Hogenberg, they'd have a very formidable driver lineup, I think, next year. On the topic of engines, we should mention Porsche. So on Tuesday, Adam Cooper's story about Deputy Chairman of Porsche's Executive Board, Lutz Meschke, who's got responsibility for finances and IT, basically said, yes, Porsche is considering an F1 entry for the new engines, so 2021 time. So if you're Red Bull or McLaren, there's a serious car company with a very illustrious history in racing that could possibly come in. So does that change the pieces on the chessboard at all or is this just all about the short term for for McLaren in terms of just get out of Honda any way you can and it, that doesn't make any difference if Porsche comes on the horizon a few years down the line I think McLaren will be you know, having two channels open at, at once won't they like the short term is that the lack of performance of the McLaren Honda package is killing them commercially can, killing them sportingly they're not not achieving the results they need to to fit their business model and also their reputation so they just want to bin off the honda get the best engine that isn't a honda in the car that they can for the short term until the rules change and you can bet in the meantime they'll be doing everything they can to try and set up a new partnership and Porsche should be the perfect company they've, they've done it before haven't they so why not be another another great return yeah, let's hope it goes better than the last one <laughs> yeah. i think everybody who is effectively an engine customer in Formula One at the moment is work as Ben says is working with two strands of thinking. The first one is you're working up to the end of te- 2020, and then I think you're having a completely potentially fresh start from 21 onwards. And obviously they're framing the regulations at the moment. There's a few engine manufacturers, not necessarily with usual F1 pedigree, who appear to be showing an interest, probably hoping that they can push the engine rules down a down a path where they're so simple that you can come in perhaps without the recent experience and I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing for F1 you know why do we just have to worry about Mercedes Ferrari and Renault engines effectively because they've been around for a long time let's uh let's sweep a sweep a broom through uh, the engine supply sort of makeup of the grid and see if we can get a few new ones in as well yeah I think there's a desire from the the top end of Formula One to make that happen as well. I think there's an over-reliance, as you say, on those three manufacturers and appeasing them. I think Formula One's new owners want to broaden the the horizons, if you like, and and encourage more manufacturers in, and that gives everybody more options. Uh, Red Bull, you would think, given they've they've got a, a association with Aston Martin, who've also expressed an interest in the in the new. Uh, engine rules for Formula One that would be the natural partnership for them if they're framed in a way that means an organization an organization like that could come in and that would free Porsche to to associate with McLaren um, which I think um, McLaren certainly would want to and then you've got your two big teams that are without manufacturer support suddenly they have it 
and then we don't need to worry about what Ferrari, Renault and Mercedes are doing and the other um, independent teams will make their own arrangements. I mean, most of them are in pretty good shape, I think, as far as their engine supply goes. They've got, we've got Four Cinder and Williams seem to be happy with Mercedes. Maybe, you know, down the road they might switch that up. Uh, Sauber's done its deal with Ferrari and that, that works quite well. So the only team then would be Toro Rosso. But you'd imagine if Aston Martin came in with Red Bull, then there'd be immediately or certainly eventually a supply for for them. Unless, of course, Toro Rosso ended up doing its own independent thing with Honda. So if this deal comes together, maybe Toro Rosso becomes more of an independent team and uh, everybody's happy. Well, for now, we're waiting for the machinations to go on in the background before there's any kind of official announcement. So I'd urge everyone to keep checking autosport.com for all the latest news. Obviously, we had the Porsche story on Tuesday morning, which changes things a little bit, and I'm sure there's going to be plenty of news to follow. Also, check out Autosport magazine out every Thursday. This week's issue has got Ben Anderson's very in-depth Italian Grand Prix report, his ever-popular driver ratings, which he loves social media feedback on, as I keep saying. No, I do not. (laughs) And also, I'd urge everyone to consider the Autosport Plus subscriber area, 94p a week, and among the things you get right now, we've got Gary Anderson, why ditching Honda would leave McLaren with nowhere to hide. So there's plenty of opinion and features and in-depth pieces there for people to get their teeth into, for those who like to dig a little bit more deeply. So thanks for joining us. Thanks very much to Ben Anderson and to Glenn Freeman. We'll be back soon with another Autosport podcast. Music is 6am by Trilo, written by Marcus Simmons. See soundcloud.com forward slash Trilo Music. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Social Podcast Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.